Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to part two of our three-part 100-episode celebration, covering one of my favorite trilogies, Toy Story. I'm Patch, and with me is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. Before continuing down this journey of Pixar's first big franchise, as we started in our last episode, uh, Aaron, do you have any particular feline film installments that stand out to you from our first 100? Yes, of course. Um, There are plenty of those. And I would also like to say this is one of my favorite trilogies as well. Sorry, uh, I, was, I didn't mean to disclude you in that. I, I was not it was, forced but. to cover Toy Story with a gun to my head or anything crazy <laughs> like that. We didn't make any shady back deals where, you know, I cover Toy Story if Patrick covers the Fifty Shades of Grey series or something like that. Oh my gosh, that would have been a weird deal right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, um, I, I love that we got to talk about some of those episodes on that first episode. <laughs> That was kind of meta, but uh, uh, we have to talk about some of our memories on that first to- Toy Story episode. And another one that really sticks out to me is episode 44. And this is currently our second most downloaded episode, probably because of the special guest that we had on with us, partially. Uh, it seems that every time that we have the great Andrew Dice from ScreenRant.com come on our show, those episodes get listened to a lot <laughs> and uh, understandably so because he has a strong fan base uh, people appreciate him and like us respect the way in which he engages with all kinds of media whether it's film or tv or comics etc he's just he has a great positive outlook and is a champion for that cause even more so than sometimes we are and i really like him for that reason mm-hmm. but uh, interstellar was a, a movie that falls in that group of, of films that are very important to both of us. We, we already knew we love the movie. And so we wanted this to be a good episode. You know, we kind of, sometimes we have expectations and we, and hopes that some episodes will turn out and be justified. And this one for me, just having Andrew there and, and talking through this film for the first time in depth, it really helped me vocalize and come to terms with many of the emotions I've always felt when watching it. I had never really tried to put them into words before. And it was just, it was, it was a great thorough conversation about a movie that has consistently been making its way higher and higher in my own all time list. And it felt like it was a discussion that did the movie justice. And it's also good enough that I have listened back to it quite a few times, which is very rare. And so for that reason, I go with interstellar because it is one that I think about all the time. And I remember very fondly. Well, I'm always going to potentially put uh, Andrew Dice episodes at the top of my list when it comes to favorite episodes. And I actually was thinking about this before um, I began compiling our notes. And when you put it down, I was like, well, darn it. I don't want to put that because, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we usually have, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to have like matching connecting points when we have matching favorite episodes. That's just boring. Right. But I will echo the fact that, having him on is such a treat because of the fact that we have this kindred spirit when it comes to appreciating film uh, like we do. And I remember the first time as we were 
kind of getting the podcast off the ground and his articles about BVS and his articles about other things that we connected with were like, hey, man, it'd be so cool if we could get him on the show. And you're like, well, why not? Let's just email him. And, and you know, sure enough, our BVS uh, Ultimate Edition episode where we talk about uh, fan criticism was uh, was his was the first that we had with him on, and he's just become a a, a great friend to of the show, uh, and what has started out as sort of a fanboyness on my part, and just really just like giddy when he comes on the show has been a, just a real fun experience every time he comes on. I love the fact that he elevates our conversation. I love the fact that he brings um, a even if it's a similar perspective, it's a different voice, literally and figuratively to the conversation that we're having. And um, the Andrew Dice effect is in full swing anytime uh, he comes on for an episode. And so I'm glad that people enjoy having him on as much as we do. And uh, I'm glad that we can have him on as a semi-regular guest when it comes to at least what DC, DC movies and Christopher Nolan movies now. So just a, and Waterworld and Waterworld. Yeah. So it's good stuff Um, for me. I think my, second big episode that that I look back on fondly is the, uh, and I mentioned this on our end of the year episode, it's episode 58 on 13 reasons why it was a different episode for us for a number of reasons. It was one of those rare times that we covered a television show, but I know for both of us, this was one that was hitting at just the right time culturally, as well as having that emotional punch that, uh, that we gravitate towards. And it was also one of those few discussions that I remember being sincerely nervous about uh, for, for a number of reasons. The, the subject matter is very sensitive. And so you, you have to have this conscious effort to make sure that you're being sincere to uh, what's being talked about, even within the confines of a fictional narrative. And so something as sensitive as suicide and the questions and answers or more questions really than answers that it provokes. It's, um, it's real easy to, to put your own opinion and make it sound like you're promoting the right answer to something when it comes to subject matter like that. And so I was grateful that we were able to talk about the show, talk about the subject matter from an entertainment standpoint and keeping with in line with our emotional takeaway from it, because this was definitely one that had a visceral reaction from both of us. And I felt like we had covered the series in a way that really celebrated its art as well as uh, brought that responsibility of its subject matter. So to say that I enjoyed the episode, I don't know if it's completely a true word, but I know that it was one that was memorable and one that I'm proud of. Yeah, I agree. I am as well. And I, I, I'm I'm happy that we did it. It's not something I would want to do very often. A, because the note taking is ridiculous when you're doing like 10 plus 11, 12 episodes of a show and then trying to condense that in down into a one conversation. You're going to always feel like you've left stuff out because you want to go into so much detail. But I think we did a really good job of staying kind of high level themes, like you said, and dealing with the emotions without trying to preach and without trying to say this is right or this is wrong. That was the the big controversy that came with that show when it, when it released was all about what is it trying to say? Is it, is it suggesting that suicide is good or bad? And we, we talk about it and we kind of 
kick it around and we debate. Yes, no, there's reasons for both. And we leave it up to you as listeners to take away what you want and inform your own opinion. So I thought it was a good episode as well. Yeah. Um, well, let's go ahead and get into the, uh, the second part of this. And I don't know that we need to mention that it will be spoilery because if you're listening to this, you probably will have listened to the first one. And so, but we'll go ahead and give that official disclaimer that anything from here on out will be Toy Story 2 filled spoilers as we, as we go through this, uh, this great second or this great follow up to, to, to a great movie. Uh, just to say first and foremost, um, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this sequel. And I know that when I left the theater after seeing it, I was going, it's a rare thing when a sequel uh, outshines its original in a lot of ways. Oftentimes sequels feel like cash cows. They feel like, Hey, let's capitalize on the success of this film, which this one definitely did. But for me, it was not something that felt like it was a, forced type of deal when it comes to the story, when it comes to everything. But uh, first, let me get your impressions, Aaron. What was your uh, one word takeaway? What did you pull from this whenever you were were watching it this time around? Well, I'm going to say I didn't remember this movie at all. There are pieces of Toy Story that in my head have blended together. And I couldn't have told you necessarily if a certain scene came from one, two, or three. I remembered the general plot of one because they're meeting. I remember the general plot of three, because it has Lotso as a villain. Two kind of just faded away for me. I didn't remember exactly what it was about. Uh, And for me, it was all about exploration, kind of getting to watch it anew, almost like for the first time, because there was so little that I remembered about this one. The word that I landed on is mortality. And that it sounds like a far cry from Toy Story 1 when I use the word nostalgic. It almost sounds like demented and disturbing and dark. But that is sort of what this movie deals with. But it deals with it so just spectacularly for an animated film. It is much heavier than I ever could have remembered. And after the fun of the adventure in the first film, we get real serious We're still dealing with playful toys that have come to life and they're exploring various fun locations like a toy store and a hardware store and an airport. But in this movie, Woody faces the horrible decision of either reveling in the precious time he has left with Andy and facing this uncertainty that comes with that or living eternally, as it were, a less than full life on a shelf in a museum where he may have many fans, but not be truly loved. I just really resonated with the story going on here, with Woody's dilemma and with what it meant for the other characters like Jesse and how that was something I could relate to even as an adult. And I'm quite sure that I'm reacting much differently to it now as an adult than I probably did when I was younger and watching this. I bet I didn't pick up on that theme, but I certainly did this time. I think it's one of Pixar's absolute best because it seamlessly combines that deep emotional depth with their typical hilarious script. And it it becomes this overwhelmingly effective and enjoyable piece of just cinematic perfection. I would have 
never thought this is where I was going to land. I would have told you it was one, three, dot, 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 two. But watching it again this time has completely changed my mind. Well, I'm glad you you landed on that word and you landed on that opinion because Toy Story 2 is definitely a favorite of mine. It is a, a movie that brings about more thinking. Uh, and, I, and I think it, to me, Toy Story 2 gives us sort of a foreshadowing of the heavier themed movies that Pixar is going to present to us later on with, um, uh, with, and with, inside. Uh, yeah, inside out. Yeah. Those two movies really came to mind as I was watching this follow up. Wally even. Yes. And I think it became a benchmark for the studio to ask, Hey, can we do this? Because Toy Story dealt with some of that, but it, I mean, it, this one, Toy Story 2, really kind of heavy-handedly, intentionally said, we're going to talk about some of this stuff, and we're going to do it within a safe environment, like the animated world and with these characters. And I'm glad that Toy Story 2 exists, because then we had the success of Toy Story 2 not happened, we probably wouldn't have gotten the Wallies and the Inside Outs and the Ups. And and that would have been a shame, because I think that we, that was something that began to define Pixar beyond just their cool animated style, but really their in-depth narratives that they, that they try to tell. Yep. That's what started to set them apart. Yeah. And for me, my one word takeaway was community because this sequel seemed to make the logical leap forward from Toy Story. As I mentioned before, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the sequel equally, if not more than the original, because it seemed like, okay, yeah, this is where we're going to go now. We've talked about Buzz, talked about Woody, you know, them and their rivalry, and that was a fun story to tell. But let's focus on the rest of Andy's toys. And let's go one step further than that, and let's focus on a new set of toys that we don't know about yet. And that's a risk. That's a real risk because you, you have this kind of bucket of, of characters that you can play around with that you've gotten us used to from your original movie. And now you've given us more screen time with them, but then you give us even more characters in the forms of Jesse and bullseye and stinky Pete. And you're like, Whoa, I didn't think I could enjoy an ensemble cast like this. And it just surprised me. And so this particular entry is connected for me because it's Woody centric. Like I'm a huge fan of Woody. Um, I remember, I don't remember if um, our friend Garen, when he and I used to hang out in high school, uh, we would gravitate towards one or the other. And he was a buzz guy and I was a Woody kind of fan. And so we were, we were both kind of focused on our own favorite characters. And, and I remember specifically throughout this trilogy being sort of focused on Woody's character, but I love that we have this focus on family and then the extended family with the uh, Woody's roundup gang. And so by the end of the film, it, it completely immersed me into and surprised me that I was falling in love with another aspect of this franchise and not just the things that I was used to from the first one. And those outtakes, oh my word, those outtakes at the end. I mean, this was yeah. something that had never been done before, at least not that I can recall that an animated feature would have a blooper reel yeah, really, awesome. with its characters. I mean, I that's like, what is going on right now when that, that started. <laughs> so, 
it, it, to me, it put Pixar on another level because it told me how much, you know, intimately the creators cared about their properties enough to say, we're going to spend time to actually create a blooper reel for animated characters. <laughs> it just cracks me up, man. And at the same time, it says so much about that Pixar family and, and how much they care about each other and their properties and all the stuff that they put together. Yep, absolutely. And it, and it even almost had a little bit of a pre-Marvel uh, teaser type situation where all of a sudden Flick shows up and there's kind of like this like joke about a Bug's Life 2 and then a giant Buzz Lightyear comes through and makes it a, into a funny thing. Um, they're not actually announcing a Bug's Life 2, but they, they make you think they are because I remember I'm watching these outtakes and all of a sudden those two guys show up and I was like, what way? Whoa. Are they like seriously like teasing another movie? And then they make fun of themselves and kind of play off that. So it's, yeah, the outtakes are, are wonderful. Yeah. And what we're actually seeing in that scene is, <laughs> and if you, when we, when we zoom back, it's a scene of from the actual film toy story too, where, Oh yeah. Okay. That's what it was. Just, just very meta and very, uh, you know, it's, it's nice anyway. Well, two big ideas come from this movie, uh, the idea of community and the the idea of, of which you mentioned, your mortality. I think that's great that our one word takeaways really articulate these big ideas that come from the film. And I wanted to start selfishly by talking about community. It's fine by me. Um, there is this contrast and I wanted to ask if you picked up on this or if you saw something beyond this of Andy's toys as a family and the Woody's Roundup gang. Something that I pulled away from this was Woody's Roundup, these other three characters, uh, Stinky Pete, Bullseye, and Jesse, um, as you know, are part of this franchise, part of this kind of property that existed called Woody's Roundup. And they had been collected by Al from Al's Toy Barn. And all that was needed, apparently, as we walk through the movie, is a is a Woody doll. And particularly one with a hat, you know, because he was really excited about having his uh having his hat and finding that at the at the garage sale. And there was an interesting contrast that I that I picked up on, which was the fact that Woody's roundup needed Woody to be complete contrast against the fact that Woody needed Andy's toys to feel complete because most of the movie was about, it was a, it was a rescue essentially, or a search and rescue of Andy's toys looking for Woody after he rescues uh, squeaky from the, from the garage sale. And I wanted to find out when when a when a film is exploring community like this, did you see that as intentional or did you see that as sort of a byproduct of the the story that they were telling? Where did you where did you land as far as picturing uh, picking up on this idea of community with Andy uh, and his toys versus Woody's Roundup when it came to Woody's character arc? You know, I honestly did not pay much attention to Woody's role in the two and think about that much. I w definitely understood there's a difference here of how Jesse and Stinky Pete live their lives based on the fact that they are in a museum, um, that Nedry has collected them 
Sorry, not Nedry. It's Al. These aren't dinosaur embryos. Same guy though, by the way, same voice. actor. <laughs> um, but it, you know, they, they live in a way in which it's what they know. They live with what their environment has come to talk to teach them is reality. And so they don't see anything outside of that. And I think it's hard for them to understand and believe and imagine what Woody's life with his friends and with Andy can be like. And even when he explains it to them, like, it's not, it doesn't really resonate because to them, all that matters is what they know. And so it's a matter of that until Jesse has some memories that come back and kind of remind her that she used to know what that was like. And we'll talk about that more later, but I didn't really think too much about Woody and the toys at Andy's house this time around. I felt like, you know, this was a typical rescue mission for them. They went out, they wanted to find Woody. They were going on an adventure and it was, it was a little bit of a twist since in the first film, the adventure is with Woody and Buzz together as sort of antagonists to each other. And in this one, it's Buzz becoming the leader and leading the troops to go get his now friend. Um, and so I, I guess I didn't think too much about that, to be honest. Yeah. It's something that I think when I, when I watched this, I tried to look at it from the perspective of the, of the crew in this case, because the first was really about Woody and Buzz. And I really feel like there was a focus on at the very least a core group of, of Andy's toys. Like they got more screen time. Uh, I love the fact that Rex had his own little subplot with trying to figure out how to defeat Emperor Zerg from the, the Buzz Lightyear video game. Video I thought, game? That, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And, and that was a great way to introduce our, our buzz doppelganger uh, at, at Alice toy barn. But for me, if, if I'm looking at Woody as essentially the glue that, that holds this franchise together, that this portion of his story arc really stood out to me because of the fact that he was finding out more about who he was. And he was faced with the dilemma of having to choose between two families at one point. And seeing us get to a place where he literally had to make a choice between being part of a roundup, the roundup gang, and going to a museum and satisfying the needs of these three individuals versus going home or what you know he was being told was home and what has been his home for most of his life as a, as a toy, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a conflict there. And I think it it's tied into the fact that he is trying to continue to figure out what his purpose is and where his role is in this community. You know, the first movie set up the fact that he was the leader and that was usurped by Buzz showing up and being this new toy that had all these gadgets. And we talked about it in the last episode that he kind of came to grips with the fact that he wasn't the sole important toy in Andy's life that he had to share the spotlight and he willingly shared the spotlight by the end of toy story. And that was part of that. But now he's challenged with something else because he's being told he was part of something else. He was important. He was the top dog in this property of Woody's roundup. And there's so many great moments, particularly my, one of my favorite scenes is him discovering all of the merchandise 
and watching the Woody's Roundup show, the facial expressions that he makes as he's watching himself on TV are just incredibly satisfying to me because you can see it in his eyes and in his face that he's like, wow, I was something important. And that's a, that's a key thing for him throughout this, this franchise is being important to somebody or being important to some people, I say people to, to a group of, of individuals. And so I, I think for me, seeing how those two worlds conflicted with each other and complemented each other with Andy's toys and the Woody's roundup gang was, uh, was something that I thought was very intentional from the Pixar team. And it worked really well to, to show those two kind of juxtaposed against each other. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I, I certainly agree about Woody looking for a purpose and that being a major character arc or dealing with what struggling with deciding what his purpose is going to be. And I, maybe not deciding what his purpose is going to be, but trying to reconcile what he feels are two purposes, which is being Andy's toy. And then this new purpose of satisfying this supposedly bigger idea, this bigger role that he has played and was unaware of. But I think that they did a great job of actually giving Buzz a similar issue a similar challenge with his own identity because he ends up running into that buzz light your doppelganger of course and there's a great moment one of my favorite little scenes in the film is when that buzz points his weapon at him and he says i have a laser and i will use it and real buzz as i'm going to call him says you mean this light bulb <laughs> and he like pokes it right I feel like it's a situation where real Buzz, our Buzz, has become self-aware and he's no longer the programmed AI that we started off with. So he's almost like a Hal in this case. Like he's the old Buzz is Hal who was programmed by the humans and just thinks he's actually a space ranger and can shoot things and needs to go fight Zerg. But new buzz our buzz has become sentient in a sense and can make his own decisions and sees things in a much different way and i i really enjoyed how they played out that kind of deeper sci-fi concept in this little animated way um and it, it, it it's a fun subplot like you said with rex thrown in there and fighting zergs great scenes it's good action and it reminds me that Buzz is also still kind of searching for his purpose because he had, he doesn't have one either. You know, his, he used to think it's interesting because he, he started off thinking that he was this big dog. I'm Buzz Lightyear, the space ranger. Woody started off being just fine being a toy. And then now we've kind of flipped the roles in Toy Story 2 where now Woody is, is realizing, Oh wait, there is a world out there where I'm bigger. And kind of like Buzz. And then Buzz is completely content with just being a part of that community you were talking about with Andy's family. Yeah, I think in this one, you mentioned that that switch position. I felt like Buzz was trying to convince Woody of his importance to Andy in the same way that Woody was trying to convince Buzz of his importance to Andy in the first film. And so you could almost have a nice little pairing of Toy Story and Toy Story 2 by showing these two characters in reverse. I also like the 
the idea of seeing you know, our buzz and the the <laughs> the robotic buzz against each other, not against each other, but but juxtaposed against one another because of the fact that we got almost an echo of what we saw in Buzz from the first film being shown to Buzz himself in the second. Because it, I mean, you could see some of those some of those character traits in Buzz with the utility belt. And by seeing it against the real Buzz, it it was hilarious and also very much uh, meta for him. Be like, wow, I really was that uptight. I was, I really was that kind of <laughs> just completely engrossed in my own, my own, my own uh, coolness to even care about anybody else. It is quick, quick spoiler for Duncan Jones's film Moon. So if you've not seen Moon skip ahead like 30 seconds, maybe 15 to 30 seconds. But what this really reminded me of is Sam's character in Moon when the new clone shows up yeah. and he's trying to reason with it and he's trying to explain to it like, no, this is what you are. And the guy's like, no, I'm not. Like, you're confused. And it, like, even though he can see him with his own eyes, he's not mm. realizing it. I really felt like after having seen moon that it's almost, it's almost played out just like the way that the two buzzes have uh, interactions. It's really funny. And I actually didn't pick up on that until you just told me. So that's really, really cool that you, that you picked up on that. I also love the fact that we got an adventure inside a, a toy store where we had all these other properties that started showing up. And, um, you know, Barbie was probably one of my favorite moments having, become like the, I guess the, the, uh, the stewardess tour guide of the toy store. I thought that was fantastic. And I thought this was the moment where, uh, where Mattel was like, here, we want to shine in this one. Here's our, here, take our money and use our, use our product. And we get this hilarious, uh, tour through the toy store saying, here's Buzz Lightyear, the great toy from the year, blah, 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 blah. And it became, you know, they start, she starts talking about the fact that he was the hot toy that particular year, much like your one big toy around the holiday season that nobody has the you know, parents don't have the foresight to get ahead of time. Um, and we had other movies and stories that center around, you know, that particular kind of idea. And I think that this adventure through the toy store just gives us a celebration of toys in general. Like I was excited to see what was on these shelves and all of the, the different types of games and um, you know playful artifacts that I knew about growing up, just seeing them populate the shelves. Um, and I thought that was really fantastic. So when you see this big giant aisle full of buzzes and then you eventually have fake buzz putting real buzz into a, <laughs> into a, a toy box um, and tying them up with those like crazy ties that, you know, you have with, with your action figures and sliding them in there and then seeing that camera pan out. And he's like, oh my gosh, is he going to get out? Well, of course he is. But in that moment, you're like, oh my gosh, real buzz is in peril. How is he going to get out? I thought it was great. And and using these two buzzes together in the adventure, I think added to the fun and the mayhem of the of the story. Yep, I would agree wholeheartedly. I really enjoyed, like I said earlier, those those three kind of locations of the toy store, the hardware store briefly, and then the the airport. It was fun to see them out of their element yeah. as a group. Mm-hmm. As as a group, not just Buddy and Woods. Whoa. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> in Toy Story 4, the search for more characters. <laughs> 
I'm writing that down. That's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Buddy and Woods, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> in the newest episode of Toy Story, brought to you like by- that from the record. <laughs> That's a nice segue to talk about new characters that we have been introduced to in this latest installment. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Woody's Roundup. This game, this trio of of characters in the form of uh, Jesse and uh, and Stinky Pete, <laughs> God, Stinky Pete, played by Kelsey Grammer. I thought that was perfect. And and Bullseye, um, were you initially, if you can harken back to your first time watching this, were you impressed, or were you uh, did, were you impressed with this trio of characters in um, in this movie? Did you feel like they were a great addition the first time you watched this? No, okay, I did, and I don't still. Okay, uh, I, I like Jesse. I think Jesse makes sense. I think Bullseye makes sense. I have never been a fan of potty humor, of juvenile kind of humor, and I I think that's Stinky Pete. Like he's that kind of character. <laughs> Okay. And that's why you like him. I know. Cause you're giggling. You thought it was hilarious. His fart joke and the outtakes. The, the, <laughs> the one time he uses body humor. I think, um, I think Kelsey Grammer is a great, I think he's a great voice actor. I just don't love him. I don't know. I don't hate him by any means. I just, he's not my favorite. Like I don't, I don't, he's, I don't remember him. And that's the thing. Like he wasn't memorable. To, I didn't even, recall that that was the plot and that he existed i remembered that jesse came into the play in the series at some point that bullseye came into play in the series at some point but i didn't even know that stinky pete was a thing until i started watching it again and i was like oh yeah there's that guy i kind of vaguely remember him he's he's just unmemorable to me yeah but as a whole these characters and what they brought to the to the adventure i mean did you like did you feel like they were used really like effectively? Did you feel like they were? Yeah, no, I mean, the story's done well. It's, it's a fantastic movie. The story's great. I just, I mean, you're talking about an, you're talking about an ensemble here of animated characters and just like a real life ensemble. Not everyone is going to be equal. Not sure. everyone is going to come out on top as a beloved favorite character. I just watched the departed again last night. And this is a perfect example Mark Wahlberg got nominated for a best actor, best supporting actor Oscar for that film. In rewatching it, I was like, what? He's great. He's good. He's very solid in his minimal screen time, but it's far from a standout role. And yet it's a name actor named, you know, like Mark Wahlberg. And I see this as similar. Like Sneaky Pete's great. He fulfills his job perfectly, but he's not somebody that I care about remembering as much as other characters. Well, I think you said it exactly. He fulfills his job perfectly as the, as the quote unquote villain, as the one who I think adds a voice to Woody's head in terms of being, um, I mean, he's a temptress is what he is. I mean, he is the devil in a lot of ways, uh, when it comes to his role. I mean, both metaphorically and sometimes literally because of the fact that he's convincing Woody of what his purpose should be. You mentioned earlier, that Woody's not trying to figure out which purpose he was trying to figure out which purpose he should choose. And I think that stinky Pete's role is to try to convince him in one way, shape or form to go that route. But see, the thing is what contrasts him with Jesse and Woody's decision to temporarily go that route 
is their motivation. Woody's doing it from Jesse's point of view. Uh, Woody's doing it to sacrifice for her and he's doing it for a, and, and we, we accept that we, we go, yeah, that sounds like a good reason. But when stinky Pete kind of brings it up, we're like, why would you want to, why would you want to make that decision to satisfy what he needs? It's almost like they, they both have the, the, the same end game of being part of this set and sitting in a museum where kids look at them. But Jesse needs it for a different reason than stinky Pete does. Like they're both, they're both, I don't know if they're bitter, their, their motives. I gravitate more towards Jesse than stinky Pete. And I think that's, that's intentional because of what we see later on in the movie. And so I wanted to talk about Jesse a little bit and leading into our second idea of this, this notion of mortality. The second half of the film does something really interesting is it takes us on this kind of secondary adventure with these characters that we don't know a lot about, particularly with Jesse and her role and her past. And by taking subject matter like this and combining a heaviness to it, um, we get these dealings with a child's deepest fears of abandonment, drawing on their uh, fearful relationships with adults. And this is reflected from this toy's dependence, from these toys dependence on their owner's love as much as a child longs for their parents' love as well. And this was unexpected for me. It was unexpected for me to kind of see, oh my gosh, they're, they're hitting at what I think the later Pixar films are swimming comfortably in, in terms of these, I don't want to call them darker themes because I don't necessarily think they're dark, but I think they're more ominous and more kind of um, just kind of like a slower burn. Like they take their time in developing. And I think for me watching Toy Story 2, it brings me to a place of saying, okay, I need to pay attention. I need to think about what's going on here a little bit more that this is where the adult entertainment aspect of it in terms of reaching in and, and grabbing those deeper things really comes to light. And we're getting beyond just a ha ha funny moment. Here are some adventures that toys are going on. Um, I liked ha having that. I liked seeing that theme uh, being played with really well. And I wondered what other aspects of that did you gravitate towards personally in terms of, uh, in terms of that? Well, I mean, it's, it is definitely about abandonment and it is about the idea of mortality and whether or not you will live on or it, what, how you want to live your life essentially. And, framed in the context of nothing is infinite. Everything is finite. And that's what is so powerful about the way this story is told. Lives are finite. Time with Andy is finite. Time with Emily in Jesse's case is finite. It, it's all moving and flowing and it's not going to last forever. And I think up until this point, you know, we're dealing with characters who are like Woody who believe that it will always be like this. It's just always going to be me and Andy and the toys. They don't, they don't know what any other life looks like and it shakes him out of that. And I think for, for kids watching this, it kind of can do the same thing and they can really relate to that. And it, it works in the same way for adults. 
who can look at it and think of it as, you know, your children will leave you because you're an, we're all going through stages in life. And maybe right now your stage is as a parent and my stage is a parent. But ultimately, those kids are going to grow up. They're going to turn 18. They're going to leave the house and they're going to abandon in some sense us in the sense of compared to what they are now. And so I felt that very strongly in what the movie was trying to show us. And I, I just think it is it's so brilliant that it can be done that subtly that as an adult, I resonated with it pretty much immediately. But as a much younger adult, I did not pick up on it hardly at all. I just saw it more of as a sad story of, you know, Woody's kind of worried and, oh, let's just get Woody back to Andy. Like that was the, that was the resolution. But the real resolution to me in this story now is the awareness and the understanding that these characters have come to know about themselves and about their lives. And I feel like now you can make better informed decisions as characters. Now you can make choices knowing that nothing is going to last forever. And frankly, it makes everything more meaningful because it isn't going to be that way forever. It's temporary. And so relish it, live in the moment, savor it. Like all of those thoughts are going through my head when I was watching this play out. So would you call this a coming of age film for a couple of these characters? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. I totally would. Yeah. I, I picked up on that too. And knowing that things change, um, my one word takeaway from the first one was, you know, was change. And this plays into that, that we have to be fully present in the moments that we have. And in the case of Woody and Buzz and Jesse, we have, they have to be fully present in their roles and their responsibilities as toys being Andy's toys or Emily's toys. Um, and there is a sense of, of losing innocence in some ways when we, when we see this abandonment idea take hold, we, we sense that, that growing up and that putting away uh, childish things or in the case of a toy, putting away childness <laughs> and finding, trying to find meaning elsewhere. It's a sad, but true statement because in some ways I agree with, with stinky Pete that if you can't be loved by a child, you might as well be loved by something else. Um, and I, and I think his, well, I don't necessarily like his, his attitude about it. I think it's a bitter attitude. I think that he makes a good point because like Jesse and bullseye and even, you know, in tempting Woody, all these guys from the roundup gang are trying to find meaning. They're trying to find their purpose after being discarded for one reason or another, uh, after their time spent with an owner or time spent as a property had sort of died and they're trying to find new meaning somewhere else. And it breaks my heart a little bit because, you know, a toy is valuable to its owner. And when that value goes away, what purpose does that toy have? Um, and 
I think that was a very conscious decision by the the storytellers here to get us to ask that question and at least explore it in our own minds of what does it mean to have to move on from your season and do something new? You know, it's, it's like I have a friend of mine who for the longest time, he was a soccer coach. His passion is soccer. And for the sake of his family and the life that they have with their three children, he had to give that dream up of, of coaching soccer because of where they were financially and needing to, to be essentially, I mean, to be quite frank, to be the man of the house, to, to be a husband and a father first and foremost, and be a soccer coach to give up that dream. And in some ways, I think we get that from, from these characters in some ways, they're aware of the fact that they were important in this regard and they're not that anymore. And they are trying to find their importance somewhere else. Um, I think we can all kind of connect with that in some way, shape or form because our lives change. Our lives bring with them different roles and responsibilities based on decisions that we make. If I choose to get married, my responsibility is to my wife. And if I choose to have a, a child, my responsibility is now to be a father. So we embrace those things and, and, and hopefully do those things without any kinds of regrets about what could have been if we had chosen not to do those. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, I mean, it's, it, it can definitely go both ways. And, um, yeah, before we get into our connecting points, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, some of the technicals. Um, obviously the visuals are still just as stunning from, from the first, you couldn't do anything but improve on that. So I, I don't want to hearken on that a little bit more, but I wanted to mention Randy Newman. So Randy Newman is someone that I think I knew from, from earlier works back in like the late eighties. This is the first time that he became a powerful musical force when it came to musical scores. I mean, he is all over this trilogy, like white on rice or whatever. And when I listen to his voice in any other song, I immediately gravitate towards Toy Story because his vocal stylings are so unique. And when we have a song like You've Got a Friend in Me and we have that's him. him. Sing, I didn't yeah. know that was him. Yeah, that's Randy. That's Randy Newman. I think. See, now you got me doubting myself. Wow. I, didn't, I just knew he was the composer. I knew that he wrote the song. He also wrote uh, When She Loves Me this song in this one he, and the song in toy story three. So he's written the main song and all of the scores for all three films, as well as plenty of other Pixar stuff. But I just didn't know that that was him singing it. Yeah. I think that's him because it, the distinction of his voice is, is definitely something that I, I am always keenly aware of. I've heard his voice in, uh, in other songs that he's written outside of uh, the world of soundtracks, but he brings a a heavy heavy talent to this trilogy not only in music but also in lyrics and i think all the songs that are written are very poignant they don't feel like they're filler they feel like they they matter to uh to the story they're not just they're not just there to get us to you know shake our heads back and forth and and be like oh that's a fun song you got a friend in me you know whatever although they do that and i think they serve that dual purpose but uh, but I grew to really love his uh, his work as a composer after after this trilogy uh, came to completion. 
All right. So let's move into our connecting points and I'll go ahead and get us started. The scene that stood out to me, and I think that really hits on what you connected with the most was Jesse's arc and getting to know where Jesse comes from, like her whole backstory. And it's all sort of truncated, or not truncated, but it's all solidified by Sarah McLaughlin and her song. I, oh, I almost lose it every time I hear the song because it starts out by saying, when somebody loved me, which indicates, oh my gosh, the past tense of the word loved. I mean, oh my gosh, here it comes. And so the whole sequence of seeing Emily, or seeing Jesse being cared for and loved on by Emily with this song as its narrative just completely puts me in a place where I'm I'm trying to understand what it's like to be a child and what it's like to be a toy and having an owner that grows up. And I love seeing the other side of this giving up of childish things from the perspective of Jesse. It's so heartbreaking because it reminds me that as kids, we put so much life into the and value into the things that we have. And Pixar really does a great job of asking the question, what if that life was equally given back? What happens when that life is abandoned? And in some some way, some strange way, it helps me understand my five-year-old. I, I recently have noticed how much he gravitates towards specific stuffed animals and how when he walks around the house, he has one of these animals in his arm, like he's caring for it. There are times when I see him talking to his to his sheep. He calls him Sheepy or, I mean, you know, very original names for, for his animals, Sheepy and Froggy and Doggy. And, you know, so nothing really mesmerizing about their names. But the fact is the way he hugs them and embraces them, I mean, he's, he's giving them life by interacting with them. I mean, he knows that they're not alive. He knows that they don't have lungs and a heart and that they're not going to talk back to him. But it's that magical world of imagination that that Pixar introduces us to in the first film. And it carries over into allowing us to see the emotional connection that we had as children with our animals or with our action figures or whatever, that we gave life to them and therefore we gave them purpose. So seeing that from the other side, seeing that life that was given to a toy, um, being sort of discarded by its owner. I, I don't ever think I would have thought I, I would care for a toy as much as I cared for Jesse in that moment. And it's of course punctuated by Sarah McLaughlin singing that song and really telling Jesse's story. And uh, so for me, that's the moment that I really, that I really resonated the most emotionally with the, with the movie. Yeah, it's the same for me. Uh, again, it's the that scene is pretty strongly the most emotionally moving in the film. It's the core where the change is happening and the characters, the realization is coming across Woody and all through that memory that Jesse is having and her loneliness and feelings of abandonment by Emily. They just they come across so strong and really it's highlighted by those lyrics those the song in the background sometimes when you hear a song playing as background music for an a scene that is the the actual music itself is emotionally effective 
and it starts to evoke a response from a viewer or a listener. But in this case, the lyrics were so on point. It is as if Jesse is singing this song, even though her mouth is not moving in the film. And for those that didn't just rewatch the movie before listening to this episode, I want to read the lyrics to this because I think that they're very powerful. And you can take this obviously as more than just a toy who is reminiscing about her relationship with her owner. You know, you can, you can relate to this with any relationship that has, has gone away from, from your life. And so it goes like this. When somebody loved me, everything was beautiful. Every hour spent together, lives within my hear. And when she was sad, I was there to dry her tears. And when she was happy, so was I, when she loved me. Through the summer and the fall, we had each other, and that was all. Just she and I together, like it was meant to be. And when she was lonely, I was there to comfort her, and I knew that she loved me. So the years went by. I stayed the same, but she began to drift away. I was left alone. Still, I waited for the day. When she'd say, I will always love you. Lonely and forgotten, never thought she'd look my way. And she smiled at me and held me, just like she used to do. Like she loved me, when she loved me. When somebody loved me. Everything was beautiful. Every hour spent together. Lives within my heart. When she loved me. And it's so powerful, I think, because it's it's visceral and it, it, it makes you hurt. Not just for that character, but it makes you hurt so much for yourself and for those that you've known in your life. Jesse ends this with like one single line of dialogue where she says, you never forget kids like Emily or Andy, but they forget you. That is a gut punch. <laughs> and I had the thing that is also so brilliant about this to me is that I had to rewind it like three times and I had to actually turn on subtitles to get this. I kept turning up the volume. And it's because in the performance, the vocal performance, Jesse's voice is very soft and almost cracks at the beginning of this statement. And that is exactly what you would expect of someone saying these words, thinking about the lyrics of these songs going through their memory. That's how you would react, right? Your voice would crack. You would be struggling to get those words out. And that's what we get from Jesse. And man, is it real? Yeah. Is, is it real? And it, it makes it so much more of a meaningful story from that point forward in the movie to me that when we go to the adventure pieces, I know we're going to come back and we're going to get something wrapping us up. And it just, it's, it elevates it, man. It really, really does. It makes it something unique and special in that, that way that we've come to know Pixar films and the way that frankly, we kind of bash them for when they don't give us that now. Cause we're so used to it. We're kind of, we're kind of like spoiled. And if they don't give us something as deep as this, we feel cheated. You're exactly right. And you're, you're right in, in that it sets up such a great redemptive final, final act with that adventure piece. 
Um, I kept I kept thinking of Fast and the Furious Six uh, with the with the airplane sequence where they're trying to get out of the plane what? and they're being yeah it's just, you know you get this big plane and they're all trying to they're trying to escape the plane before it takes off and they're being uh, you know Jesse and Jesse and Woody are uh, using I think Jesse uses Woody's uh, what is his his pull string to kind of. Uh, attach him to so it, the whole adventure thing felt very action right. action movie not, yeah. spe- not specifically you know fast and the furious but that kind of thing but the thing that really made me happy was when 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 woody goes home or when he's on his way home jesse feels like she says do you think andy will like me and he goes are you kidding me he's gonna love you and in that moment you realize that oh my gosh she's gonna be loved again and that Maybe her time with Emily, yes, it's over, but her time with Andy is about to get is about to get started. And of course, seeing how they all how he ingratiates them, you know, by putting his name on each of Bullseye's feet and and putting his name on her foot on her boot as well. It's so uh, redemptive to me to have that kind of ending. I love celebrating the fact that she was with a new owner, and uh, it, it made the made the ending that much more satisfying. Agreed. Well, that's about all I have. Where can people find you if they want to keep the conversation going about Toy Story 2? Uh, you can find me all over the interwebs at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. You can also find me tweeting from the Feel and Film Twitter account and very active in our amazing Facebook group where we would love to have you come and join and be a part of that everyday conversation with other movie lovers and listeners. Yeah, and if you want to find me, you can catch me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H, ready to talk about any of the movies that we've covered or any of the movies that you've seen that might be good recommendations. Be sure to at me and uh, let me know what you think of uh, our conversation here. If you want to find out more about the show, if you haven't already checked it out, uh, check out feelandfilm.com for all of our past episodes and some great reviews that have been written by our staff as well. Aaron, thanks again for this conversation. I'm looking forward to finishing off this trilogy in our next episode. Me too. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.